Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Welcome to our Bible study. Every Wednesday night we gather and go in-depth into God's Word. We're in 1 Peter. We're just about to finish. This is our 16th week in our session in, uh, in 1 Peter. We have two weeks left. And then after that, we'll be going back to Old Testament book. We do Old Testament book, New Testament book. And so uh, looking verse by verse and uh, in-depth at what God says to us through P uh, Peter's first letter to the believers up there in Asia Minor on the Black Sea as they were trying to live for the Lord up there on 63 AD. But we're glad that you're here. Those joining us online, we welcome you as well. We always have a large number of Wednesdays studying God's Word with us also. So we're glad to have you also. Let's pray together. Father, thank you tonight for your word, for the opportunity to study it together. Your word is alive, it's powerful, it's, it's uh, you speaking to us every time we open it, and I pray that will happen tonight. God, may our hearts be open and receptive to what the Holy Spirit has to say to us, and God, help us to change our lives in, in accordance with what you'd have us to do and who you'd have us to be. God, I thank you for this church, and thank you for how you blessed us, and pray in the days ahead that if we follow you, Lord, that you'll continue to bless us. We'll be faithful to you, and the kingdom will be expanded because of this church here. So I'm thankful for our members, thankful for our people. Pray you bless them tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 tonight. We'll look at the first five verses of chapter 5. And so let's look at our outline to begin. First of all, letter A on your outline, where, where we have come so far in the study here. Where have we come? And you might remember uh, Peter, a disciple of Jesus, one of his, one of his uh, closest disciples, now is, uh, is a, a church leader. It's about 63 AD, which is about 33 years after Jesus died, ascended, rose again. Jesus probably born 4 BC, died 30 AD. You know, there's no year zero, so they make him 33 years old. So around 30 AD, whenever he ascended back to heaven, then Peter uh, became a leader church in Jerusalem, and he's writing to a bunch of uh, Gentile believers on uh, the Black Sea in Asia Minor. Usually, it's probably a house church. They didn't have buildings till third or fourth century that, like we meet in, so probably a house church. And most cities had usually more than one house church, and so there may be several different house churches in, in any one city. And so um, uh, we don't know how many there were, but he's writing to the believers there because, if you remember, persecution is about to begin. 63 AD, so far, persecution is about like we face in America. Uh, people may, you might be discriminated against because you're a believer, but nobody's going to beat us up, nobody's going to arrest us, nobody's going to kill us, behead us. And so, at the time of the writing, that was taking place too. Some discrimination, misunderstandings about the Christian faith and about Christians and things like that, kind of ostracized at times. But really the persecution was not to the point of being arrested or losing your life. Well, it's going to change in right at a year, maybe a little less, maybe at 10 months from the time he wrote this persecution because Nero comes on, he hates Christians, he comes into power and he starts beheading, uh, killing Christians, pitting them against animals and uh, to the death uh, in, in sporting events and things like that. So it's about to get really difficult for believers. So he's trying to prepare them. And let me ask you a question tonight. If, if we, right now in, in America, let's say, let's say 10 months from now, America changes to the point where we're arrested for our faith, we're beaten for our faith. Some of us are in our church are killed just because they're believers. How would that 
change what you say 10 months later to us. And that's Peter's task. Peter knew it was coming. God had revealed it to him. What do you say? Well, we saw at the end of chapter 4 last week, he tells them, Beloved, don't be surprised when these trials start happening to you as if something strange is going on. Because if you're a believer in Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. And so he told them that. So be faithful in persecution, and he ends the chapter. Now we start chapter 5, and it begins in an odd way. I'll be honest, it's not a way I would have expected. Persecution's coming. What do you tell the church? You tell them, be faithful. You tell them, hang in there. You tell them, God's never going to leave you. You tell them all. He told them, do your jobs in the church. What? Pastors, you be a good pastor. Members, you be humble. So he starts to tell them things that really didn't kind of make sense if you're talking about persecution, but it did to Peter. So let's look at it now. Let her be on your outline. Fulfill your church responsibilities. That's not really a message you think that would come with persecution, but fulfill your responsibilities in the church. Hopefully you're in a church. Hopefully you're you're a member somewhere, you're active somewhere, you're serving somewhere, and, and if that's the case, when persecution starts, you keep it up. You be a good pastor, you be a good deacon, you be a good Sunday school teacher, you be a good church member. And that's what he begins to tell them. So, let's start with verse 1 on the outline, letter B, fulfill your church responsibilities, verse 1. So, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge being examples to the flock. Now let's talk about the first three verses here for a moment. Peter now broadens the perspective and reminds these Christians that you have responsibilities in the church. Because sometimes suffering makes us selfish. And he does not want you to be a selfish church member. He does not want me to be a selfish pastor. He does not want you to be a selfish deacon where you're always worrying about yourself more than anybody else. And, to be honest, there are some church members and some Christians and some pastors and some deacons very self-centered. And he's saying, don't be like that. Fulfill your responsibility. Now, notice he said, I exhort the elders. Who are the elders? Well, if you go to churches today, some churches have deacons and some have elders. Some don't have elders, they just have deacons. And so, is he talking about an office of the church? Maybe, maybe not. Because in those days, the word elder was what you would think of in our culture if you hear the word elder. Some of it's older. And that's, that was what the word implied. However, in the early church, the term elder became known as a title for somebody who performed the function 
as a pastor. Overseer is what it meant. Pastoral shepherd. And he tells here, shepherd the flock of God. He may be talking to pastors. So, elder might mean pastor. The Greek word that's used there is the word presbyteros. We get the word presbyterian from it. It means overseer. It means shepherd. It implied somebody older, but it could be somebody young too. Timothy, by the way, was a pastor. Paul said, don't let anybody look down on your youth. So he was an overseer at a very young age. So it wasn't necessarily age as much as it was title. He may be talking to the pastors here. Now, there are three basic types of churches as far as um, governance, church governance goes today. There's the Episcopalian model. Uh, Episcopal comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop or a single leader. So, for example, the Roman Catholic Church tonight has the Pope, and he's over all Catholic churches. So, so Roman Catholics are an Episcopal type of church government. You have one guy over all of it. Anglicans are the same way. One guy over all of it. Um, Greek Orthodox, Episcopalian, same way. One person over all the churches. That's the Episcopalian form of, of government. Then the second one is the Presbyterian form from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder. So in those churches, you have a board of elders. who They're over every church out there. Board of elders. Not one man, but a board of elders over everybody. Methodists, uh, you'll see a lot of uh, uh, Presbyterians, all like that. All they, they all make decisions. A board makes a, makes a decision, not an individual. Third type is congregational. Congregation makes decisions. That's what we do. Every church is autonomous. And there's nobody over us. There's nobody in Nashville or in Dallas saying, since you're a Baptist church, you must do this. Every church is autonomous. We, we do what we feel led to do. And so the congregation, under the leadership of the pastor, makes those decisions. Uh, committees pretty well uh, represent the church, and so they make those committee decisions. So you have Episcopal, you have Presbyterian, you have congregational, actually there are three types. Here he uses the word elder, presbyteros, presbyterian, which could be pastor, could be deacon as we know them. Now elders in the Bible started becoming uh, important really early, book of Exodus, Exodus 9, Exodus 12, uh, Exodus 3, Exodus 12, Exodus 19, all talk about elders and originally an elder was somebody who had the wisdom and the maturity of age to make decisions so you would go to these people who are older they have more experience they're wiser and they would make the decisions however later on it was more about traits you possessed than it was age now i have a young person who's wise then you go to them as an elder even though they may be younger it was a practice of Paul and Barnabas to go from church to church and establish elders upon elders as they started churches in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 23. Peter considered himself to be an elder. Did you notice that in verse 1 where he says, uh, as a fellow elder? So he was known as an elder. John was known as an elder. Second John and Third John, both John calls himself an elder. So it's a trait more than necessarily an, an office. But notice what else he says. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. 
Peter was saying, not only did I witness Jesus' suffering, now I'm getting to share in those sufferings because persecution's coming. Peter would be one that had his head chopped off the next year. So, he says, visually I witnessed the sufferings of Christ. When did he do that? Well, Garden of Gethsemane. Peter was there and he saw the great drops of blood that fell from Jesus' brow onto the ground. Uh, he was there when the authorities came across the Kidron Valley and arrested Jesus and started roughing him up and hauling him away. And he was an eyewitness to that. And then they got to the, the uh, high priest hall and that's where they first started to beat Jesus and strike him across the back. And Peter was there to witness that. He saw the sufferings. Was Peter at the cross? We don't know. We know John was. We're told that. We don't know if Peter was actually at the cross or not. We know he was in the courtyard warming his hands by the fire as the trial's going on, trying to keep a close enough distance to see what happened, but far enough to not be associated with Jesus. And so, so we know he was at the, at the trials, but we don't know. Is he keeping a distance at the cross? We don't know. But we do know, Peter tells us here, I was an eyewitness to what Jesus suffered, and now I am privileged to suffer in the same way. Verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Peter told the leaders, take care of the church as a shepherd would take care of sheep. In the early church, often an elder would function as a pastoral, a pastoral role and pastoral work. And so the word shepherd is used here, literally means to tend poimano, which literally means to tend a flock. And so that would include the members of the church of uh, caring for them, shepherding them, feeding them, leading them, guiding them, guarding them, and providing all the needs like a shepherd did for the sheep. Do you remember that's what Jesus told Peter to do? You remember that story, John 21? Jesus had resurrected. Peter had denied Jesus three times, so Jesus is cooking breakfast for him one morning while they're fishing. And they go, oh, it's the Lord. And they jump into the Sea of Galilee and they swim to shore, and Jesus has breakfast there. And after breakfast, of all the disciples there, 11, Judas has already hanged himself now, and so 11 disciples there. And Jesus said, "Uh, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. He said that three times. Did Peter have that in mind as he wrote verse 2? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Notice whose flock it is. God's. You're not my flock. You're his flock. I'm I'm just your shepherd. Congress, so many times pastors talk about my people. They're not your people. God's people. It says here, God, flock of God. Deacons and leaders, these aren't your people. God's people. We just have the awesome responsibility like a shepherd of shepherding them exercising oversight very rare greek word that's used there it means manager or supervisor the shepherds are to be examples to the sheep 
I should be a good example to you. Our staff and our deacons should be a good example to you. Our leaders ought to be a good example to you. There's an old adage out there that um, churches take on the personality of the pastor after about five years he's been there. So you will become like me. That's frightening, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Churches do. They, uh, they become like their leaders. So be careful how you lead if they become like you. So then he tells us three attitudes that ought to, that ought to characterize the leaders of your church. Then he starts in verse 2. Verses 2 and 3. Three attitudes that clarify the proper motivation a leader should have, elder. It's interesting because these are not stated as adverbs. You'd expect them to be adverbs, but they're not the participles used as an adverb. So listen to what he said. Three characteristics of your leader. Number one, serve willingly and not grudgingly. Did you see what he said? Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. Paul told the Corinthians the same thing, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. God wants us to serve the flock of God willingly. Not because you feel like you have to, but because you get to. Sunday school teachers, you don't lead because nobody else will take the class. You lead because God has given you the awesome privilege to teach His people the Word of God. We should care for the flock of God out of a desire to serve God. Not to serve the people. Not to just do it because nobody else does it. But willingly, not because you have to. Now there are some of my peers tonight that uh, they... They serve grudgingly in their churches. They want to be doing something else. They feel trapped. And ministry to them is a drudgery. Man, ministry is a privilege. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He chooses to use us. He chooses to bless us and bless people through us. He doesn't need us. He gives us the awesome privilege to serve Him willingly and lovingly. I hope you do that. But here's the second attitude he said leaders should have. Serve enthusiastically and not selfishly. Notice he says next, uh, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly. No one should serve in a church for what they can get out of it. Now, Serving makes you feel good. Don't get me wrong. I love when I get through preaching and I feel like God's blessed and you, know, you see the church doing something, you feel like God's blessed. That's a good feeling. But we don't serve for what we get out of it. We serve for what Jesus has already given for us. Service should always be out of a desire to serve and a love for God more than anything else because you love Him. Some people, uh, as Peter said they uh, they do it not for they do it for shameful gain going to church to some people's good business they see you at church hey might help your business you're running for office go to church you got a lot of votes in there 
It happens. When I first started in ministry, it doesn't really happen anymore. When I first started in ministry, we'd have a lot of people come to church who were in multi-level marketing, and man, they saw they saw customers. Amway. Oh my goodness. I don't know how many Amway dealers I had to tell through the years, no, you're not going to do that in this church. I want you to come. You're not coming here for business. I'd have, an, I'd have them ask us for membership of the church role, a name, and address. And no. Folks, you don't come here for selfish gain. You don't come here because of what you can get or your business thrives or you get votes. You come because Jesus died on the cross for you and he's, he, is, he is, wants you to serve, expand the kingdom, and, and, and be a part in that way. Now, evidently in Peter's day, you're thinking, wow, only 33 years after Jesus ascended and went back to heaven. That's awful early for people to start taking advantage of the church financially. I guess it was happening. I, I guess you had Amway dealers in, in 63 AD. I don't know. But you, but you had people who were taking advantage of the church for financial gain early. Dr. Hebert used to say, to enter the ministry simply because it offers you a respectable and intellectually stimulating way of making a living is to prostitute the sacred work. That's right. But here's a third attitude Peter mentions. Lead as an example to the flock and not driving people with authoritarian commands. Notice what he said, very interesting, verse 3. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Not domineering. I can't be a dictator over you. You're not mine. You're his. You're God's flock. So my role is to lead you as a shepherd leads sheep. And be an example for you. My role is not to be an authoritarian dictator over you. Now this statement here shows very early in the life of the church you had dictatorial leaders. How do you know that? Because Peter addresses it in 63. So already by now we have those leaders who have risen up in the church and, and they see power and authority over God's people already. Otherwise, Peter would never have addressed it. Wasn't that long ago our, our seminaries, they don't do it now, but it wasn't that long ago our seminaries would train pastors as they came out, come out that your style of ministry ought to be authoritarian. It ought to be like a dictatorship. And that's what they taught you to come out to churches and be. That's why so many pastors got fired. But that was what they taught. And like I said, not now, but they used to teach because if you, if you it's kind of like the advice that Rehoboam got. Um, if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. So you always let them know who the boss is. Never let them up. And that's how you lead them. In fact, whenever I was in Romania, I, pastor, I, I preached to a hundred pastors on Saturday, and after my sermon, they had question and answer time, just where they could answer, ask me any question that, that they wanted. 
and a lot of them had to do with leadership because still that model is over there of, of authoritarian style of a pastor, dictator. You don't like it, you hit the road. But you know, my example as shepherd is Jesus. Was he a strong leader? Absolutely. But he's a servant. He washed their feet. He, he took a towel and a basin of water and washed feet. You, you can lead sheep, but you can't drive sheep. And the advice I got years ago I think is really good. You can shear sheep a lot of times, but you can only skin them once. So the shepherd must lead in ministry and service and expect the sheep to follow his lead. If you do shepherd's work, you need to have a shepherd's heart. Notice he says those in your charge in verse 3. The word that's used there, three, four, letter, four words in, in English, only one word in Greek. Clerou. We get the word clergy from it. It means those people allotted to your charge. Dr. Linsky says, shepherds are not to be little popes or petty tyrants. We're to be examples of the good shepherd. The church is blessed if it has ministers and deacons and leaders that resemble Jesus, not resembling tyrants. Dr. J. Vernon McGee said, quote, I made it a practice and I pastored a church never to ask my congregation to give that which I wasn't giving myself. I do not think we have a right to make a demand of people of those things we're not doing ourselves. He's right. Dr. Wearsby, if I have any counsel for God's shepherds today, it's this. Cultivate a growing relationship with Jesus and share what he gives you with your people. That way, you will grow, and they'll grow with you. So, Peter mentioned three attitudes we as leaders should have. And he mentioned three sins to avoid laziness, greed, and dictatorship. All of which are never welcomed in ministry, especially when the days of persecution are right around the corner. Now, go to number three on your outline, the great shepherd's appearing, verse four. Verse four, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Shepherds of churches, we are the under shepherds. We have a great shepherd, it's over us and over the church. Jesus is the great shepherd. I'm the under shepherd. The other ministers, we're under shepherds, but he's the chief shepherd. And Peter said, when the chief shepherd shows up, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory if you're faithful to do what he's called you to do. Shepherds must give an account of our stewardship of the sheep at the judgment of the seat of Christ, Hebrews 13, 17. We will answer to him for what we did with his flock. The word there, crown of glory, is interesting. It's the word Stephen in English, Stephanie. In female version of it in English. Stephanos in Greek, it literally just means crown of glory. So, was he talking about in verse 4 that whenever Jesus comes back and we go to heaven, was he talking about that we get a literal crown on our head or was it symbolic? I've heard both. 
I've heard people say, oh, pastor, we, we're going to get a crown. I mean, a physical crown. And the Bible says we're going to take the crown and let it feed of Jesus. No, a song says that. The Bible doesn't say that. There's a song that says that. What's the Bible say? Well, we're not really told. Uh, several crowns are mentioned in the Bible. It's the crown of righteousness in 2 Timothy 4.8. There's the crown of life, James 1.12 and Revelation 2.10. There's the crown of joy. Uh, Philippians 4.1 and 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. But biblical writers, when describing crowns, this is why I think it's more figurative, and I don't think we're going to have a literal crown in heaven. I think, it's, I think it's figurative. And the reason I believe that is because biblical writers, when they describe crowns, they describe them in figurative terms. They didn't describe them in literal terms. They didn't say a crown of gold or a crown of silver or a crown of bronze. They said a crown of glory, crown of righteousness, crown of, uh, of, uh, you know, of life. It, it's descriptive of symbolic terms, not necessarily literal terms. So for that reason, I don't think we're actually going to have a physical crown in heaven. I think it's symbolic, but I may be wrong. If I get there and you see me and I've got this big crown on, just know I was wrong. <laughs> so shepherds that are faithful now will receive glory that will not fade when Jesus returns. Why did he say a crown that doesn't fade? Because back in those days, they had like games like we have Olympics. They call them the Isthmus Games in Corinth because of the Isthmus that it's set on. Very much like our Olympics. And they would receive as a crown, not a gold medal that, received, that the emperor would place on their head. It was a, it was a laurel crown of, of uh, flowers and, and uh um, different shrubbery, I guess, you know, as a crown. And you wore that thing gladly, but it faded. After a while, it, it just leaves and stuff, it just, they, they turn brown. And Peter says, when you get to heaven, you're going to have a crown that fade. In other words, God's never going to forget what you've done. So be faithful. And then look at verse 5, and we'll close. How we are to relate to one another, verse 5. Likewise... You who are younger, now remember he's already talked to the elders. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's a lot to say there. Let's, let's unpack it before, we're, before we leave. The younger here seems to imply both male and female. If you are younger... One of the things you are to do is to submit yourself to those who are older in the faith, those people who are more mature in the faith than you are, those people who are wiser in the faith than you are. Don't think you know it all. Don't, don't think you can do it all. Don't think you don't need anybody else. Submit yourselves. Same words used here, wives submitting to husbands earlier, chapter 3. He's, it's a military term, hupotasso, line up under. So, so give yourselves to those people who, who are wiser in the faith than you. Sometimes we don't want to do that, but we must do that. We need to do that. In the ancient world that Peter was writing in, society was divided into older people and younger people, just as it was divided into men and women. We don't really do that today. We don't, in, in, in our culture, say, are you an old person or a young person? We don't say that. And so, but that culture did. You were male and female, you were old and young. And those divisions were ever bit as sharp. And so Peter talks about these. 
Most elders were older, but it does not mean that, they were, that there were no younger leaders. As I mentioned, Timothy was a younger leader at Ephesus. And Paul wrote, says, Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because you're young. You've been an example to them. And so you had younger leaders, but, but it wasn't common. Age was valued in this culture because it was thought in this culture, all the way back to the Old Testament, age brought wisdom. And it doesn't necessarily. You remember Job. You remember Job uh, goes through all of his experiences, and these three friends show up, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and they show up, and they are telling uh, Job what a horrible person he's been. Just repent of your sins. Get it over with. Everybody know you're, knows you've sinned because you've had all these bad things happen. And Job's going, I, don't, I can't think of anything I've done. And so for 35 chapters, they go on this soliloquy back and forth. Oh, Job, come clean. Come clean. Honest. I don't know. Oh, Job, you're lying. Come clean. And you see this for 35 chapters. And finally, a young man by the name of Elihu stepped forward and said, Yeah, I've been listening to you guys for 35 chapters now. And you know, maybe, just maybe Job's right. Because wisdom, Elihu said, is a gift from God that doesn't automatically just come with your age. So let me speak. And he was closer to right than anybody else when he spoke. So age was valued in the culture, but just because you're older doesn't mean you're, you have wisdom and experience. It, it, you may, you may not, but that's, they valued that in the culture. So listen to what he said. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with, um, with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves. Now, here's just an interesting grammatical side note. I'm not, I don't want to get real technical, but it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that the dative case is used here in the Greek. Because the, the dative is a recipient or a beneficiary of an action. It's like an indirect object of a verb in English. So it does, when it says clothe yourselves, it sounds like a command. It sounds, it sounds like a, a reflexive. You, you gird yourselves you know, or clothe yourselves. And so the best way to make sense of this, as scholars kind of made them scratch their head on this once in the dative, most scholars believe that he starts a new paragraph in the middle of chapter 5, uh, verse 5. So, with clothe yourselves, with humility, is starting a whole new thought process. And that's the best way to interpret it. So, it could function as a dative of relations in, in, in the emphatic by saying, as you relate to one another, serve each other with humility. So, that's just a, it, it, he might have changed thoughts here. So, stay with me for a moment. He's saying all Christians, regardless of your age or position in the church, should put on humility as a garment. Now, whenever you put on a garment, why don't you put it on? Well, tonight you put on clothes to come up here because, well, you don't want to get arrested. you got to clothes on uh, and stay warm. But why did you put on the outer layer? Because it's going to be seen, right? And so that was part of this. What ought to be showing about you as a Christian is your humility. That's the part everybody sees. 
So he says, not leaders now, everybody, every Christian, put as an outer garment on that everybody can see. Humility. I'll be honest, I'm not going to have to tell you anything new. There are some arrogant Christians out there. There are some pretty cocky Christians. And Peter says, don't clothe yourself with that arrogance. Clothe clothe yourself with what people see about you. Humility. Because the bottom line is, you and I have nothing to be arrogant about. If it weren't for the cross of Christ, we're lost. So clothe yourselves. It was a rare Greek word, clothing. It, It came, the idea came, or the word that he uses here is is. Servants in those days would, over their regular clothes, they'd take an apron, what we know as an apron, put it around themselves, and they would serve a meal. And we, we still have people do that today. They'll put an apron on and serve a meal. And it's the same concept. Put on humility and serve. You know, Peter wrote this, and I can't help but think he thought back in his mind as he wrote it years earlier to the upper room at the Last Supper. When after supper, Jesus got up and took his outer garment and set it aside as if he was putting his glory aside and got a towel and a basin of water and girded himself and stooped down and started washing feet. And they're going, whoa, what is he doing? Slaves do that. The Son of God doesn't do that. And I wonder if Peter had that in mind when he used the same word to say, just as our Savior got up and put on that towel to wash feet, you put on humility probably saw it in the upper room what are some marks of humility how do you know you're humble well humility is that one characteristic that the moment you know you've got it you just lost it how do you know you're humble how do we know if we're obeying this tonight well let me give you about six ways you know you're humble Number one, if you have an eagerness to serve others rather than expecting others to serve you. That's one way. Secondly, not insisting on having your own way. Boy, sometimes in churches, we're going to get our way. Not insisting on your own way. That's one way. Another way, a willingness to perform the most menial and lowly tasks. Do you see anything as below you to do? If you do, you're not very humble. Number four, a consciousness of your own limitations. If you, if you say, I can't do what I do unless God was empowering me and you really mean that, that's a good sign you're a humble person. But if you think you can do it because you've got this ability and strength and knowledge and you're smart, it's not humility. The fifth way to know you're humble is a willingness to be ignored in your service and not needing recognition when you do it. There are some people, they'll do anything in the world you ask them, but boy, you better make over it. You better thank them 500 times, and you better say what a wonderful job they did. But you're truly humble when you don't care if you're recognized or not. Just glad to serve. 
And the last way is, you can know if you're humble or not, truly, if you're truly others-focused rather than self-centered. Self-centered people aren't humble. So if you really are thinking of others, that's a good sign of humility. And so these are six good markers to know whether we're really humble or not, because we're commanded, be humble. And then the very last thing he says at the end of verse 5, I find interesting. He quotes the Proverbs and says, For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a proverb. It's Proverbs 3.34. And so Peter's quoting the Old Testament. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is important in our relationship to God. If you want to live in grace, you've got to put pride aside. Grace and pride are enemies. So you can't have them both. If you want grace, grace is God's unmerited favor. If you want God's grace, you've got to put the pride aside. Grace deals with me on the basis of who God is, not who I am. Pride deals with with me on the basis that God blesses me because of who I am. So pride's thinking of who I am, and grace is thinking of who he is. Dr. F.B. Meyer said, quote, Pride is one of the most detestable sins, but it finds its lodging into very well-meaning Christians' hearts. We often talk about it in lighter names, such as independence or self-reliance. But even the most well-meaning Christian needs to watch because pride can enter so easily. Spurgeon says, if you're willing to be nothing, God will make you something. So, look at, that. Look at what he says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace, grace to the humble. Here's the word picture. The word opposes there in the Greek is the word used for a battle, uh, an army going out to do battle. And arraying themselves in battle and set for the enemy to come. So, think about what he's saying. God opposes the proud. Do you want God opposing you? I don't want God opposing me. I, I don't want to approach him and he has, has his battle ready to go and he's ready, ready for battle against me because he's opposing. I don't want God opposing me. I want God giving me grace. I don't want God's opposition. Do you? I'd rather have his grace. Well, there is a way to get his grace, not his opposition. Be humble. Clothe yourselves with humility. God opens his arms. But when you're proud and you're self-reliant, he opposes you. We'll stop there. We'll pick up verse 6 next Wednesday night. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these good admonitions tonight. Sometimes these are hard to hear, Lord. God, sometimes we're guilty of these as a pastor, as leaders, as members. And so, Father, forgive us. God, help us to be the people you want us to be. Lord Jesus, I I pray that you'll continue to remind us, even this week, of of these verses and, and practical ways that we can serve and practical ways we can not have you oppose us, 
but have you extend grace to us. God, we need your grace desperately. Help us to clothe ourselves with low-mindedness. Help us to take the apron, put it on, and let others see the humility that we have before you. Father, forgive us of times where we become proud and help us to humble ourselves. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Peter with these admonitions that he's given to us. And God, I thank you for these people, and I pray you'll help each one of us this week to walk in grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.